Welcome to this conversation on the Episcopal Church and the tradition of common prayer. My name is Mike Angel. I am one of the priests at Holy Communion in University City, Missouri. This is part of our pilgrimage class for folks exploring the tradition. But if you have stumbled upon this discussion, welcome. We're glad you're here. Today we're going to talk about common prayer, the work of liturgy, the work of worship, and the work of prayer in the Episcopal tradition. At the time of the Reformation, this was something that set Anglicans apart. We talked a little bit in the last class about Anglicanism, about what is the Episcopal Church, about this wider tradition of which we are a part. And so we're going to talk a little bit today about liturgy. At the time of the Reformation, you also have to keep in mind that the printing press was relatively new technology. And the printing press was used by a lot of the reformers to produce tracts about belief. There were theses from Martin Luther, there were um, catechisms, there were statements of faith. But as we talked about last time, the Anglican tradition, the church in England, couldn't really settle on just one tradition, on one doctrine. What was interesting, though, was it was the decision in England to take the liturgy, the words of worship, and to put them together in a book, and to put them in the vernacular, in the language of the people. And this was a really revolutionary step in the life of the Church of England. Rather than saying, we're going to produce a bunch of theological tracts, they took the worship. Liturgy is a word in Greek that means simply public work or work done in public. So they took the work of worship and they handed it to the people, literally. They bound it together in a book. And the Book of Common Prayer, the first one, was created by the Archbishop Thomas Cranmer. Much of it was a translation of the service as it was in Latin. The service of the church that had happened in Latin that many people had parts of the service memorized, like the Lord's Prayer, the Pater Noster. Uh, the people suddenly could say the service in their own language and suddenly had the whole service right in front of them, including the parts of scripture that were to be read. This was a revolution to put the work of praying in the hands of the people. You have to remember that at the time of the Reformation, England was a very monastic country as much as a third of the land of England was owned by monasteries. Monks ran all of the great churches like York Minster and Canterbury, even St. Paul's in London. So at the Reformation, there was a big handover of land and of wealth and of resources. And one could argue that one of those resources was prayer. Thomas Cranmer really thought that by giving the people the Book of Common Prayer, he was going to make the island a little island of monks, almost. He had it in his imagination, we think, that everyone would wake up every morning and gather together at the church for morning prayer, 
and then they'd go off after morning prayer to do their work, and they'd come back at the end of the day for evensong, uh, and then they might pray Compline at home by themselves. Cranmer took what had been the many services of the monastic order and distilled them down, the idea being that the people of every village could pray together twice a day. Well, that only sort of happened. Um, in some of the great college churches at Oxford and at Cambridge, in some of the great cathedrals, there are still daily services, especially of evensong. Um, the evening prayer tradition in the Anglican tradition became this glorious choral tradition. Uh, there are more settings of the service of evensong uh, then you can know what to do with, more than there are weekdays in a year. And so this beautiful tradition of choral music by lay clerk choirs, that is to say not monks, uh, not nuns, not paid clergy, but uh, sometimes scholarshiped um, boys and eventually girls together with some paid singers sing the office, especially this office of evensong. But common prayer was this idea that the work of praying, the practice of praying, belonged to the people, and that we would be shaped, maybe not always by consistent belief in the church, but by the prayers that united us, by our pattern of praying. For some of the folks in this class, for some folks that are coming into the Episcopal tradition, this really isn't that new. Many folks that come from the Roman Catholic tradition already are used to a very fixed style of prayer. In Rome, the norms for prayer are set and the prayers are sent down to the churches. Some folks who maybe only recently left the Roman Catholic Church uh, will be able to tell you that sometimes that process is difficult because of the way that authority is structured. Uh, in the last decade, the Roman Catholic Church updated the English for the Mass. So in the Roman Catholic Church, all of the work of worship is supposed to originally happen in Latin, and everything else is a translation of the Latin. And the last Pope, Pope Benedict, decided that the current translation that many folks grew up with wasn't an adequate uh, translation of the Latin. And so several of the responses changed. When the priest comes in, uh, it used to be that you said, the Lord be with you, and everyone, like in the Episcopal Church, responded, and also with you. If you go to a Roman Catholic Church today and the priest says, the Lord be with you, everyone responds, and with your spirit. So there have been some changes in the Roman tradition. In the Episcopal and the Anglican tradition, like we talked last time, authority is a lot more dispersed, a lot more democratic. It takes a lot more work to change the liturgy. And so we are having discussions right now about liturgy. Holy Communion is one of the more, I would say, progressive churches when it comes to liturgy in the Episcopal Church. We pretty much only use inclusive language liturgy at Holy Communion, so we're not even praying out of the Book of Common Prayer most Sundays. We're praying from other authorized liturgies. 
I just said some words that some of you might be very confused by. If you come from the Methodist tradition, the idea that Holy Communion is, uh, in terms of its worship, a progressive place might surprise you. I went to a seminary in Washington, D.C., in the Washington, D.C. area in Alexandria, Virginia, but it was part of a wider circle of seminaries in the region, and you could go and sign up for classes in other places. And I had some good friends at the Methodist seminary in town called Wesley, and I remember one time we were talking about what worship classes were like at our two seminaries. And my Methodist colleagues were talking about how they had to design worship and how they had to plan out dramas to tell certain biblical stories and puppet shows and all sorts of, they had to write all sorts of different prayers. And I laughed and I said, well, yeah, at the Episcopal Seminary, uh, we learn, turn to page 355 of the Book of Common Prayer, start reading. In the Episcopal Church, uh, we can be a bit traditional when it comes to worship for folks who grew up in more free church traditions or churches that were a little less structured when it comes to worship. Every week at Holy Communion, the service that we do is built into the name of our church. We have a service of Holy Communion, which means that we read readings from a fixed calendar of readings. We have prayers that follow in a certain order and there is a structure to the way that we pray. And that may be difficult for some as they come into a tradition. Uh, for those that came from more traditional or more conservative worship places, uh, other Episcopal churches or Roman Catholic churches or Orthodox churches, Holy Communion might feel a little bit loose, a little bit less strict, a little bit less rigid. And for some folks, that's a comfort. And for some folks, that is disconcerting. I want to say a word, though, about why we do what we do and how it is rooted in the tradition of common prayer. A few years ago, there was a new book published by a group of younger progressive evangelicals. Shane Claiborne is a writer you may have heard of. Um, he and his friend Jonathan, uh, they put together something that they just called Common Prayer. Not the Book of Common Prayer, that tends to be associated with the Episcopal Church or the Church of England, but just Common Prayer. And sometimes it was given the subtitle, Common Prayer for Ordinary Radicals. And there were a bunch of Episcopalians that were surprised to see a common prayer book that wasn't authorized by the Episcopal Church. There has been, in some progressive circles within evangelical traditions, a drift toward liturgy, a drift toward structure and tradition. At its best, I think, what our worship does is bring together the ancient and the contemporary. It takes the tradition and the wisdom of the church and puts it in the vernacular, in the language of the people. Worship in the Episcopal Church, the tradition in the Episcopal Church, is always in a state of flux then. It's always in conversation with the world around.
At Holy Communion, that takes a few forms. As I said, we at this church worship mostly using supplemental resources approved by our bishop and the general convention, which allow us to have inclusive language for God. We don't use just male pronouns for God. Our prayer book still, which was published in 1979, that's the most recent fully authorized prayer book for the Episcopal Church, does use only male pronouns for God. So Holy Communion is out on the edge on that one. We have pushed past the norms as they are set with the permission of our bishop in dialogue with the wider church. But this idea of common prayer is one that I think can be really nourishing. It says to us that you have an opportunity as a member of this denomination, as someone who does church in this branch of the Jesus movement, as our presiding bishop says, there is a rhythm at the heart of what we do. We gather on Sundays, to celebrate the Lord's Supper, to share Eucharist. A little bit later this month, the group of us in the class will gather uh, after church on a Sunday to walk our way slowly through the Eucharist, the usual Sunday service at Holy Communion. We'll make room to stop, to ask questions, to learn a little bit about what each piece of that service is and how it functions. And that is a primary rhythm that is set by common prayer, this weekly gathering around Christ's table. But there are other rhythms as well. As I said in the beginning, there is a rhythm that actually starts our prayer book of morning prayer and evening prayer. Even Compline at the end of the day, noonday prayer, there are some inserted. But there is an idea that as an Episcopalian, as an Anglican, you are invited to pray each day, to read some of the same prayers, to read the same scripture on a calendar of scripture, to be invited into a worldwide community of people saying their prayers. Some who are monks and nuns, we have monks and nuns in the Episcopal Church uh, who say their prayers every day and chant their psalms and have big services. And many more folks who simplify the service of morning prayer and say it at home as they're preparing for their day or gather with their families and say parts of evening prayer around the dinner table. There is an invitation to a rhythm of daily prayer in this work of liturgy, in this work of common prayer. There's another rhythm that is built into our prayer book tradition, into the idea of common prayer as well, and that is the rhythm of the seasons of the church. As I record this video in the first days of October, we are coming closer to the end of what we call the season after Pentecost, what our Roman Catholic sisters and brothers call ordinary time. The Sunday after Thanksgiving this year, and usually, is the first Sunday of Advent. And on the first Sunday of Advent, we have four Sundays until Christmas Day. and there is this sense that the new year starts not on January 1st for Episcopalians, but at the first Sunday of Advent. 
as we turn ourselves again to hear the story as the gospels begin before Jesus comes into the world. And we've put ourselves in a place of expectation and prayer ahead of the feast of the nativity of Christmas day. After Christmas comes this epiphany and the season after epiphany, the celebration of the Magi and the star. And after epiphany comes Lent, the season of preparation, the great time of fasting, ahead of Easter, the great celebration of the resurrection. Then Easter itself is not just a day, but a season. We don't celebrate Easter just on Easter Sunday, but for 50 days, 10 days longer than the season of Lent, there is more joy than fasting in the calendar until we come to the Feast of Pentecost, the celebration of the Holy Spirit, which wraps up the extraordinary time and puts us back into ordinary time through the summer, the beginning of fall. And year by year, the church has a cycle a rhythm of prayer. Common prayer is a tradition, it's also a heritage. And there's something about being an Episcopalian that may make you feel a little bit traditionalist when it comes to prayer. Um, there are some Episcopalians that still prefer the these and thys and thous in prayer. They like to see the clergy in lace and, and fine vestments. Um, there are Episcopalians that still face the east wall. Uh, behind me, you can see the um, original high altar at Holy Communion. I've actually never celebrated Eucharist on our high altar um, because we have a table. We actually have a couple different tables depending on the way we are set up. But there is a way of doing worship where the priest faces the back wall up there and the three different steps behind me, there are different ministers standing on each step. We can get very traditionalist in some of our parishes in the Episcopal Church. But I think at our best, Episcopalians are always holding this tension between tradition between the 2,000 plus year history of our movement of faith, draws its origins all the way back in the prayers of Jesus, and our own contemporary day. In recent years at Holy Communion, we have started broadcasting all of our worship services online. The pandemic necessitated this, but the vestry decided not to let go as we came back to in-person worship because hundreds of people each week worship with us online. That online worship has caused us to need to make some changes to how we do worship. We have to think about camera angles and lighting, and we need to think about how people online can participate and pray with us. And I don't think that we've got it entirely right, but it is something to say that this ancient tradition of the church needs to be in dialogue, needs to be in the language of the people. So as we prepare to gather again around this uh, conversation that we're having in the pilgrimage class, I'd invite you to think about a couple of questions. Where in your own prayer life are you informed by tradition? Now that might be the 
capital T tradition of the church, Eucharist might be very meaningful to you, or it might be a small T tradition. It might be a way of praying that has been passed down from, to you from family members or friends. And where in your own life of prayer could you seek to be more in the language of the day? How do you bring the life of prayer into dialogue with what's happening in the world around you? And the final question I'd ask you to consider is this. In the Episcopal Church and the Anglican tradition, we talk about prayer in common, common prayer. How do you participate in something bigger than you when you come to church, when you say your prayers? How do you conceive of what you are doing as part of a wider fabric of human community? Is there something about praying in common that lowers a sense of burden and responsibility to carry it all on your own? We'll talk about some of those questions and more, but for now, know that I'm grateful to share my prayers with you, to be part of this wide work of liturgy, of worship together.